You're listening to a podcast from Columbia Christian Fellowship in Columbia, Pennsylvania. Our services are weekly at 10 a.m. We hope to see you there. waiting for those who are still finding their seats to find their seats. So as you can see, we were missing a couple of band members today due to illness. And I've been getting word that there seems to be a lot of illness. Um, Not necessarily anything life-threatening, praise the Lord, but a lot of illness around the church. So we won't be going back up as a band. After the message, I think we'll open it up for anyone who'd like to have the elders pray for them for healing. I know I have some issues with my back, and I definitely want to be anointed by the elders, according to James chapter 5. I have my stool here just in case, but I'm going to trust the Lord. I'm not going to have to use it. So, by way of introduction, today's title is Legalism Versus Grace, and it comes from an, it's an overview of Acts chapter 15. Acts 15 is a very lengthy chapter. We're going to break it down, at least today, into two segments. The two segments are, there is an issue causing dispute in the church, not our church, this church in Acts, and uh, the second part of that is going to be how they resolve the issue, so that's what we'll be looking at. Just a brief synopsis, there's an issue of dispute in the church. Some men from Judea began introducing legalism into the church in Antioch, Syria. The issue became intense. And it became very divisive. So we're going to look at the issue and then briefly how they resolved it. And then again next week, that resolution of that issue. But as always, brief review, catch up. We ended with Acts 14 two weeks ago, verses 26 through 28. Finally, this is Paul and Barnabas returning back to Antioch. Finally, they returned by ship to Antioch of Syria, where their journey had begun. And upon arriving in Antioch, they called the church together. They reported everything God had done through them and how he had opened the door of faith to the Gentiles too. And they stayed there with the believers for a long time. So finally, they returned. This first official missionary tour has concluded. Paul and Barnabas, back in Antioch, Syria, where everything had begun. Remember the Holy Spirit said to those who were praying and fasting, set apart Paul and Barnabas for me, for that mission. They went out on that mission. We've been studying that mission. Now they're back. In Antioch, they shared with the church all that God had done through them. The salvations, the discipleship, the miraculous signs and wonders, the opposition, the persecution, And they stayed with the believers there a long time when they're back in Antioch. Not sure how long, but they served in the church at Antioch for a long while. First missionary journey's over. They're back in Antioch. They're serving in that church. This is where we'll pick up the story today. Deb Fry, if you'll come. The rest of us will stand. 
Deb's going to read Acts chapter 15, verses 1 through 21. Certain people came down from Judea to Antioch and were teaching the believers, unless you are circumcised, according to the custom taught by Moses, you cannot be saved. This brought Paul and Barnabas into sharp dispute and debate with them. So Paul and Barnabas were appointed along with some other believers to go up to Jerusalem to see the apostles and elders about the question. The church sent them on their way, and as they traveled through Phoenicia and Samaria, they told how the Gentiles had been converted. This news made all the believers very glad. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders to whom they reported everything God had done through them. Then some of the believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees stood up and said, the Gentiles must be circumcised and required to keep the law of Moses. The, apostle, the apostles and the elders met to consider this question. After much discussion, Peter got up and addressed them. Brothers, you know that some time ago God made a choice among you that the Gentiles might hear from my lips the message of the gospel and believe. God, who knows the heart, showed that he accepted them by giving the Holy Spirit to them, just as he did to us. He did not discriminate between us and them, for he purified their hearts by faith. Now then, why do you try to test God by putting on the necks of Gentiles, test, uh, by putting on the necks of the Gentiles a yoke that neither we nor our ancestors have been able to bear? No, we believe it through the grace of our Lord Jesus that we have been saved, just as they are. The whole assembly became silent as they listened to Barnabas and Paul telling about the signs and wonders God had done among the Gentiles through them. When they finished, James spoke up. Brothers, he said, listen to me. Simona has described to us how God first invented, intervened to choose the people for his name from the Gentiles. The words of the prophets are in agreement with this, as it is written. After this, I will return and rebuild David's fallen tent. In ruins, I will rebuild and I will restore it. That the rest of mankind may seek the Lord, even all the Gentiles who bear my name, says the Lord, who does these things, things known from long ago. It is my judgment, therefore, that we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. Instead, we should write to them, telling them to abstain from food polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, from the meat of strangled animals, and from blood. For the law of Moses had been preached in every city from the earliest times and is read in the synagogues on every Sabbath. Thanks, Deb. You may be seated. So let's get into the meat of this. While Paul and Barnabas were at Antioch of Syria, some men from Judea arrived. They began to teach the believers, unless you're circumcised, as required by the law of Moses, you can't be saved. Paul and Barnabas disagreed with them, arguing vehemently. So an issue now has arisen in the church at Antioch. Some outsiders came into the church and began spreading false teaching. It says men from Judea. Most likely these were religious Jews from Jerusalem. It says they arrived, so they were definitely from out of the area. They were probably not believers because they're not referred to as such. They're just referred to as some men. 
Possibly they were Jewish religious leaders. We've seen them all through the Gospel of Matthew and the beginning of Acts and the trouble that they can cause. We're unsure of their motivation. Were they there just simply, were they misinformed? They didn't yet know the truth? Or was it intentional? Did they have an evil agenda? Nevertheless, whatever the motivation was, the men from Judea were wrong. And they were spreading false teaching through the church. It was causing uproar. It was causing confusion. Confusion. That's what false teaching brings. Confusion in the church. The leaders and the teachers in the church at Antioch were teaching one thing, the correct teaching. And the men from Judea came in and began teaching another, completely contradictory. The precious believers in the church, the flock, they were caught in the crossfire. Many of them were new believers. That adds importance that they get the correct teaching. And to make matters worse, what these men from Judea were teaching, a false teaching of a very serious nature. This was not a peripheral issue. This is a foundational biblical truth upon which salvation is based that they were teaching against, that they were contradicting. This false teaching that these men brought undermines a core tenet of the Christian faith. Now, you've probably already discerned the nature of the false teaching, but in case you haven't, the false teaching we now call legalism. And in a Christian context... Legalism is dependence on good works for salvation and holiness. Very subtle. Very subtle. Very tricking or tricky, deceptive teaching that creeps into the church. Salvation is through good works. Is a legalistic teaching. Good works, especially to these guys, these Jewish guys, was adherence to the law especially to the law of Moses. These Jews were teaching the new believers in Antioch obedience to the Old Testament law was the way to get saved, the only way to get saved. And not just the Ten Commandments. Well, that's tough enough. The whole law, all the law, all those New Testament first five books. They must not have been listening to Jesus, these men who came from Judea and Jerusalem, because Jesus clearly taught the law cannot save anyone. It could, the law could save someone if we could keep it. But there's the rub. We can't keep it. See, the law is not the problem. The law is holy. We're the problem. We can't keep the law. Who here hasn't broken one of the Ten Commandments in their life? Here's the bad news. If you broke one of those commandments, you are condemned to eternity in the lake of fire apart from God's presence. One of them. At one time. That ruined the whole deal because you weren't perfect. I'm not perfect. And the standard of getting into heaven is perfection. Perfect righteousness. 
We don't have it. We can't do it. So we're all lost and we're condemned to hell according to the law, according to keeping the law, apart from Christ. The law cannot save anyone because we cannot keep the law. You got that? It's not the fault of the law. It's us. So what was the purpose of the law then? There is a purpose. The purpose of the law was to expose us as unable to keep it. Once there was a law and we saw what the law was, then we saw that we can't keep it, and then we realized we desperately need a Savior. And we need somebody to drive us, or that will drive us, that we need someone who's going to save us, someone who was able to keep the law, someone who has perfect righteousness, and that's Jesus. And so God made a way that we can get in, even though we can't keep the law. So there's a purpose for the law. These guys coming into the church telling these precious believers who had come to know Jesus, no, you have to keep the law to get saved. Can you imagine the confusion in the church? Can you imagine the uproar? Can you imagine the despair? We thought we were in, and now we're right back where we started. The law is a huge hurdle for the Jews but for the most part, these Gentiles up north of Jerusalem, they weren't really even that familiar with the law. So they readily received the gospel of faith. And then these men from Judah appear and begin teaching this false doctrine. Put yourself in those new believer's shoes and how that would feel. What is going on? So that was back then. We don't have a problem with legalism today, right? Chuckles? Do I hear chuckles? For us today, it's far more than following. It's, for us today, legalism is alive and well. <clears throat> for us today, it's more following man-made rules and regulations, more so than the Jewish law. Man-made rituals. Man, excuse me. Man-made religious traditions. Man-made practices. Man-made man, man lists of do's and don'ts. That's where the legalism comes in today. We don't really get caught up in the Jewish law so much, but many believe, many people today believe that some form of those above rules, regulations, rituals, traditions, practices, do's, don'ts, that they will be able to save us. They will be able to give us the holiness that we need and that we long for. And I would venture to say almost all of us have been in that place where we thought we could do something to be holy in there, to be holy. But here's the thing. We cannot be holy. We have no clue how badly sin has devastated the human race. We cannot be holy apart from Christ. And even after we get saved, we can't produce holiness on our own. That's why he gave us the Holy Spirit. Jesus died because we couldn't save ourselves, so he saved us. The Holy Spirit came because we still can't live a life of holiness apart from him. He produces holiness in us. We're a wretched race saved by grace. I grew up in a religious organization that embraces legalism. And I can tell you, when I was young at least, I tried hard to keep all the rules, all the rituals, all the regulations. And it never brought me salvation. And it never brought me holiness. 
And it never brought me peace or joy that I so longed for. To this day, if you ask someone in that organization if they are saved or if they're going to heaven, the most common answer is, I hope so. And if you question why they hope so, the next answer is, because I hope my good works outweigh my bad works. Because it's a salvation based on works. It's legalism. What they don't understand, as I've already said, one bad work, one bad work condemns us to an eternity apart from God. Do you believe me? If you don't believe me, you can believe James. For the person who keeps all of the laws except one is as guilty as a person who has broken all of God's laws. Ouch. We need Jesus, right? The message of Scripture is clearly counter to the teaching of legalism. Salvation and holiness do not come through good works. Ephesians 2. It is by grace you have been saved through what? It is by grace you have been saved through? It is by grace you have been saved through? And this is not even from yourselves. It is the gift of God. It's not of works so that no one can boast. Just a few comments on this verse. The opposite of legalism is grace. A good definition of grace, you've heard it said as unmerited favor, and it is that. But a good definition of grace, a better definition in my mind is this. God's help, God's empowerment, God's enablement, his aid. Whenever you come upon the word grace in Scripture, you can insert that definition of grace, and it fits. We are saved by God's help, by God's empowerment, by God's enablement, by his aid. He comes to our aid and helps us get saved because we can't even do that on our own. There's no one who seeks God. There's no one who understands. God has to first come and draw us and open our understanding so that we'll, we'll understand and we'll want to receive him. Then he has to help us receive him. So you've been praying for some unbelievers for quite a while, and, and you can't understand, and I can't, why it's taken them so long to come to know him. Do you realize how much has to be accomplished before a person comes to know the Lord? How much God has to do? That's why he says men should always pray and never give up. You've got to keep praying, keep praying, keep praying, so he can keep working, keep working, keep working. Because all this stuff has to be accomplished because we have become so wretched and devastated through sin. Not that everyone sitting in here is the worst sinner that ever lived. But when sin came into the human race, that's what it did to us. No one can get into heaven, is ever going to get into heaven by their works. No one can be holy enough or good enough. No one. One person. The Lord Jesus Christ. Now, here's the thing, too. Maybe you want to hold on a little bit. Pew in front of you. Because it's a scary, scary ending. If you try to get in by your works. It's a scary, 
scary ending to me, most frightening verse in Scripture I'm going to show you, I'm going to share with you. It's in Matthew 7, it's 22 and 23. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? In your name drive out demons. In your name perform many miracles. And then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. This is a picture of the great white throne judgment that Chris referred to last week in Revelation 20. And these are folks standing, as Chris pointed out, these are folks standing before the great white throne. This verse in Matthew 7, these verses expose a crowd trying to get in through their works. Notice all the mentions about what they did. Didn't we? Didn't we? Didn't we? We did this. We did that. We did this. No mention about what God did for them. What they did works. Doesn't, no, not works like it's successful. Like they did their good works. What God did, grace. No mention here in this crowd, in this scenario of what God did for them. No mention of their dependence on trust in him. No mention of faith. Didn't we, didn't we, didn't we? Shouldn't we get in because we did? Well, no. I never knew you. No one gets saved by good works. And I made that clear to you during your lifetime. My own opinion, these are the most frightening verses in Scripture. You know, we all know some folks, they know they're not getting into heaven the way life is now. They know where they're headed, and they don't really care. That's still tragic. But more tragic is these folks are deceived. They thought they were getting in, but they weren't. Because they were basing their getting in on the wrong thing, on wrong teaching, on legalism. They thought they did something that was good enough, pleasing enough, that God would allow them in. Man, God is love, he's merciful, he's gracious, he's forgiving, but God draws a line and he doesn't compromise. No one gets saved by works. I made it plain to you, the Lord speaking, I made it plain to you during your lifetime and you ignored it. I wooed you your entire life and you wouldn't come. I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. These are words of sentencing. This is the judge pronouncing sentence. I never knew you. Away from me. The lake of fire. This is the pronouncement of sentencing that unsaved folks will hear before they're cast into the lake of fire and torment forever. Listen. True salvation is to know Jesus. Salvation is not religion which says man must somehow earn his way to eternal life. Salvation is a relationship with the holy God through faith, grace and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, I almost cringe when I hear them say the Christian religion. And I feel like screaming, we are not a religion. A religion is a system of do's and don'ts and rituals and traditions where you, thereby you earn your way into heaven. That's religion. And there are many of them in the world. This is relationship. We know him. He knows us. We walk with him. And he empowers us to be holy and serve him. 
That's Christianity. Do you believe me? Well, if you don't, maybe you'll believe John. Now, this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Not religion, which is man trying to get in by his own means. Didn't we do this? Didn't we do that? No, it's relationship. Comes through grace and faith. And yet these men from Judah and Jerusalem were coming into this precious church in Antioch and teaching, unless you are circumcised as required by the law of Moses, you cannot be saved. They were poisoning the pure faith of these Gentile new believers. This salvation by works, legalism, it's mentioned again in verse 5, although it's in a different setting. But then some of the believers who belonged to the sect of the Pharisees stood up and insisted. The Gentile converts must be circumcised and they must be required to follow the law of Moses to be saved. This is not in Antioch, Syria. <clears throat> this is now back in Jerusalem. And I want to show in a moment how we got from Antioch to Jerusalem. We're moving into the second segment. We know the issue now. It was legalism. How are they going to resolve the issue? Because it is causing uproar, division, and confusion among precious Gentile new believers. Acts 15, chapter 2 and 3. The church in Antioch decided to send Paul and Barnabas to Jerusalem. That's how we got to Jerusalem for verse 5. They decided to send them to Jerusalem to talk to the apostles, talk to the elders about this question. The church sent the delegates to Jerusalem. So now you have a delegation that's coming from Antioch, Syria, to talk this matter over with the big guns, the apostles and leaders in the Jerusalem church. The issue had gotten so intense, so divisive, the church was now appealing to Jerusalem for help. The delegation from Antioch arrives in Jerusalem. They ask the council of the apostles and leaders of that church, what say they on this matter? But what they find at Jerusalem, at least at first, is the Pharisees are doing the same thing there the men from Judea were doing in Antioch. The Pharisees had found their way into the Jerusalem church. The same heresy was trying to get into that church as well. Gentile believers must be circumcised and required to follow the law of Moses to be truly saved. Man, legalism is poisonous. Legalism is extremely harmful. It's an ugly teaching when it gets in the church. Legalism shows no grace. Legalism shows no mercy. Legalism is judgmental. Legalism is critical. It's strict. It's rigid, and it's unmoving. Legalism cares more about itself and its practices than it does for those who it purports to, he to, to care for, to help. Are you staying with all this? I'll give you an illustration. Jesus healed a man on the Sabbath. Isn't that exciting? Isn't that great? The guy had a withered hand from birth. And in the synagogue, Jesus healed him, and now he's healed. Wouldn't you just be like, woo, rejoicing? The Pharisees were more upset that he did it on the, on the Sabbath than he healed the guy. Because, see, that's what legalism cares about. You didn't, you didn't keep my rules. 
But look, I healed this guy. Still, yeah, you, you did it on the Sabbath. You, you're to be condemned. That's the way legalism works. Legalism says, you must do this and woe to you if you don't. Grace says, you cannot do this on your own, but I will help you and there is mercy if you fail. Legalism is judgmental and demanding of others. Grace is forgiving and long-suffering. Back to the text. All those verses that Deb read so eloquently for us, Deb, thank you. Verses 6 through 21, we're not going to cover them in detail. That's the story of how the church at Jerusalem, the delegation from Antioch, how they all resolved this issue. For Fortunately, at this time at least, wiser heads prevailed. I will read this, a synopsis. The apostles and elders met together to resolve the issue. Why are you now challenging God by burdening the Gentile believers with a yoke that neither we nor our ancestors were able to bear? That makes sense. Why are you putting this law and this legalism on these new believers when we can't even keep it? Yeah, the hypocrisy of legalism. We can't keep it. We're saved by grace, but you got to keep it to be saved. And we all have some all have some legalism in us. We all have some part of us that says, I really believe that this is something that you need to do to please God. We don't base our salvation on it, but we just think that that's a good practice and it's good to do it to please God. That is fine. No problem with that. You do that. Here's the problem. If it's not biblical then you start telling other people that they have to do it. Now we got a problem. we got legalism. Let's use an extreme example. You feel that Christians should dress to the hilt for church. That's the only way to come to church. That's pleasing to God. That's fine. Dress like that and come to church. But don't try and force your style of dress on everybody else. You think, well, that doesn't even exist anymore, does it, Pastor? So, quick story. I invited a friend that Deb and I met this couple when we were out a couple Friday nights ago, and he's a drummer. We got talking about the band. I invited him to come and see our band. And last night he texted me and said he's coming. Well, ironically, half our band is missing because they're sick, and I, I felt compelled I had to tell him that. Um, he's going to come another time. But here's the, how it fits here. His first question to me, how should I dress? How should I dress to come to your church? Yeah, it still runs deep, doesn't it? And I said, I go just like you saw me on Friday night. <laughs> you come however you want to be dressed. We love you, not your clothes. Burdening the Gentiles. Legalism is a burden. If you've ever been caught up in legalism, and I have, both before I was a Christian for sure and for a while afterwards, it was hard to break out of that. Legalism is a burden. It's a heavy load to bear. Legalism steals your joy. 
Legalism kills life, and that's something that Jesus said. Legalism kills life. It's enslaving rather than freeing. And Jesus died to set us free, not to enslave us. And we are all saved the same way. That's one of the beauty of being saved by grace through faith versus works. We're all saved the same way by undeserved grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. Level playing field. No one's rejected because you weren't good enough or you didn't dress right or whatever you have. It's a level playing field. You've heard the saying, I'm sure, that even though Calvary was a hill, it was level ground at the foot of the cross. We're all saved by grace, not by works. No one will be saved by good works. All who are saved, all who are truly saved, have been saved by grace through faith. So rather now than try to comment on all the rest of those verses, um, they resolve the issue with that thinking, why do we want to burden the Gentiles with a burden we couldn't keep that Jesus saved us from? And they all, the council in Jerusalem, the delegation from Antioch, the church at Antioch when they got back there, of course they all, all rejoiced in that. So neither the men from Judea nor the Pharisees were successful in introducing legalism for now. This attempt was thwarted by wise leadership. However, it's going to raise its ugly head again a couple chapters forward. Because legalism doesn't go away. One of Satan's favorite strategies to disrupt the church, to keep new believers from moving on in their faith. We'll close with this application. There's a purpose in this message. You know, sometimes I, I know what God wants to say, but I don't know why he wants to say it. Sometimes I, I know what he wants to say and why he wants to say it, and that's the case today. The purpose of this message is to prepare this church to receive the harvest. To prepare this church to disciple the harvest. Did you get that? Not just to receive the harvest, but to what? Disciple. Disciple the harvest. A few weeks ago, God challenged us with the call that many of us will be called to disciple new believers in the days ahead. Not just the pastor and the elders. Many of us, all of us really, if you're willing, will be called to disciple new believers. When, not if. When new believers and even unbelievers come in, and they are coming, they're going to bring a lot of baggage with them. They're going to bring a lot of stuff from the world. They're going to bring a lot of stuff from their past, just like you did and just like I did. Heck, if people start coming into church, they might not even know how to dress right. They might not even know how to act properly in church. It may get on our nerves. It will challenge us. It's going to stretch us. The question is, will we offer them legalism? No, 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 no. You, you have to do it this way. This is how it's done. Will we offer them legalism or will we offer them grace? One disclaimer on this. 
I'm not talking about compromising truth. I'm not talking about anything and everything goes. I'm not talking about straying or compromising God's word. Grace, we're offering grace, but grace does not compromise truth. Grace does not compromise God's word. God does not compromise truth. God does not compromise his word. What's said in his word goes. But, on the other hand, God is full of mercy. God is long-suffering. God is forgiving. God is a God of second chances, and so on. And a good thing he is, because if he wasn't, we'd all be in a peck of trouble, wouldn't we? Amen. So if you'll stand with me. And here's what we're going to do. We're not going to play after the message. I think I may have said that. If I didn't, I was planning to. Deb's going to come and pray. <clears throat> and when she's done praying, then I'd like the elders to come and anyone in the congregation who would like to be anointed for healing. James chapter 5 says, if there's any sick among you, let him call for the elders. And the elders will pray over them, anoint them with oil, and the prayer offered in faith will raise the sick person up. Your, your um, motion of coming forward is the same as calling for the elders to come, come to you because it is on the sick person. The elders are not told to go seek out the sick and pray for them. The sick person is told to call for the elders. Well, you stepping out of your pew and coming forward would justify, justify that, satisfy that. I know I definitely want to be healed, so when Deb's done praying, Ron's going to play some CDs, the elders are going to come forward, we'll have prayer for healing. Deb? Sorry. Go ahead. I won't get all over it this morning. (laughs) Dear Heavenly Father, we we come to you, Father, and we we just praise you that we have you. We praise you that we have this freedom. But, Father, I pray that you would guard us against seeking anything but you. I pray that we would be seeking you first and foremost, Father, and from there we will be led to what you want us to do, to get rid of those rules and regulations that you want us to, to add those things that you want us to, Father. And again, Father, I pray that you would help us to seek the healer first and then the healing, because, Father, in you are all good things, and you want to bless us and encourage us. So, Father, I just pray that you would Just give us a peace today, a peace to be seeking you, Father, a peace to know that you're with us, a peace to go out, Father, and to testify for you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thanks, Deb. Thank you for listening to our weekly message. To connect with us, visit our website at blesscolumbia.org.